Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features founding pastor Ken Warline and was recorded on Sunday, September 11th, 2022. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at, at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org live. Here's Ken. Well, good morning and welcome if you're in this room, the live worship, or if you're in the communion worships where I just got to be with you and have the Lord's Supper. So glad you're here. Same if you're online. Really glad that you're joining us today. So we're taking this year-long journey through the book of Luke. Today we're up to Luke chapter 14. So why don't you turn in your Bibles. The ushers have some. If you need one, you just wave at them. And we'll go to Luke chapter 14. You can also use your device and uh, go there electronically as well. While you're turning, I bet you would agree with me on this. That it sounds very odd today, more than 100 years later, that people actually gathered around and said, even God could not sink this ship. It was the Titanic. It had been in the works for years. 12,000 men had helped to construct it. There had never been a boat created like it. When it was finished, they believed it was utterly invincible. So much so they didn't even run the typical lifeboat drills. And you know the story. Three nights later, it was gone. Reminds me of Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And this is where Jesus is going to lead us today, dealing with this subject of pride. It's a difficult subject to, to deal with because it's hard for any of us to, to identify that we even have a pride problem. It's very easy for us to spot pride in other people. It's hard for us to find it in ourselves. It's kind of like B.O. Other people <laughs> know that you have it, but before you've quite figured it out. It's the only disease that <clears throat> it makes everybody else feel sick except the person who has it. So I want us to do a little diagnosis and, and just ask ourselves some of the questions that the great preacher of a different era called Jonathan Edwards asked when trying to figure out if you are a proud person. He says, look for some of the symptoms. One of the symptoms of pride, a harsh spirit. Do you have a harsh spirit? You ever critical of other people? related to pride what about fault finding you find it easy to spot all the faults in the other people i do uh-oh what about defensiveness if somebody were to tell you at work you know your performance your job just it's just it's you're just not hitting the marks that we need would you inside sort of bow up and say, you don't even know how hard i'm working would you do that or would you take the humble approach and say wow okay then give me some coaching because i want to hit the marks that i'm paid to hit here what about neglect of others Jonathan Edwards says that's another symptom of, of pride. You neglect other people, especially the poor, the least, the people that are considered inconsequential. You sort of move right around those people. 
keep all of these in mind as we move into our passage today in Luke chapter 14 because it's an interesting scene like Luke chapter 14. It has to deal with a uh, dinner party to which Jesus has been invited. The Pharisees are hosting this dinner party. And the Pharisees, you'll remember, they were the teachers of the law. They were the leaders and they fancied themselves to be very important. Only problem was they were very irritated by Jesus because Jesus was stealing all their thunder. Jesus was drawing crowds and numbering into the thousands. They didn't ever have thousands of people. Plus, Jesus could heal people. They couldn't do miracles, and that's kind of bad for business, you know. And so people are moving towards Jesus. And they don't like this at all. All of chapter 14 is about what happens at this dinner party. Now, I'm going to get us halfway through chapter 14. Pastor Dan's going to take the second half next week because there's so many important lessons for us to learn in chapter 14. Now, remember the, 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 the Pharisees, they're high, they're mighty, and, and at that, we read in a moment that they were at the home of the Archeon Pharisee. That's a Greek word, Archeon. As you've heard of Archangel, the, the biggest, the best, the most important. We don't know which Pharisee that was, but Jesus goes into this home, this dinner party. He walks in, sees Pharisee, 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 not Pharisee. His eyes fall on this man who has most likely been planted there by the Pharisees. Because he had a medical condition, it was called dropsy. And it was a disease, and it's interesting, Luke, you know, he was a doctor before he got into Bible writing. And, and, and so Luke tells us it was dropsy. That's what he had, where your arms and your legs get um, uh, bloated, inflamed. I think today they call it edema, edema, edema. Do you have it? No. <laughs> so, so Luke, he's telling us this man has dropsy. How does this man come in? Oh, because the Pharisees, they were using him. Their calculus is, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, which for you, Jesus, would mean healing. Not that we can do that on any day of the week, but you sure had better not be doing it on the Sabbath because you'd be violating our rules. So Jesus comes in. He sees the man with dropsy. He's looking at him. He's looking at them. They're looking at him, scrutinizing just daring him, go ahead, heal him. Jesus is in a little bit of a pickle, you think? Because Jesus is calculating, well, if I don't heal him, then I'm not being compassionate. But if I do heal him, they're going to throw the foul flag on me and saying, I, I don't care about the Sabbath. You think they got him? No, they don't have him. Jesus is getting ready to jujitsu them. <laughs> he strikes and he, in the silence of the room, lobs a question. Pharisees, is it lawful for a person to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now the ball's in their court. <laughs> it's so clever what he does. His calculus is, you can't say yes it's lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath because then you will have violated your own rules. 
But you don't say no. You don't dare say no because there's people, townspeople who are looking through the windows and they're listening and what's happening in there? And if you say no, you can't heal them. They'll say, see, I always knew those Pharisees are mean. They're heartless. They wouldn't even let that man be healed on the Sabbath. So all of a sudden, he's got them cornered when they came thinking we're going to get him cornered. And at this point, he reaches out, showing graciousness and benevolence to the man, hearing no answer from them because they're silent. It says they remained silent. Of course they did. There's no way they can win. So he's, well, I hear no answer. So he reaches out, touches the man, and he heals him. And that's a healing that you could verify because all of a sudden, he's not swollen anymore. And, and, and so he says to the man, you can go on now. You've gone home. Probably whispering to him something like, I suppose we both know how it was that you happened to be here, but you go in peace. Now that guy's gone. It's just him and the Pharisees. They're just watching. You know, they're getting irritated on the inside. It bothers them that Jesus is so clever and so powerful. And so he lobs, he doubles down on them and he lobs them another question. He says, Pharisees, if one of you had a child or an important animal like an ox or donkey that fell into the well on the Sabbath, would you, wouldn't you go and immediately pull him out? Or would you just let him stay in there and maybe die? <laughs> He's got him again. Because they can't very well say, well, yes, we would, in that instance, we would go and get him out because they will have violated their legalistic rules and worked on the Sabbath. But they don't dare say no because everybody's like, how could you be that heartless? You'd let your own son or an animal, key animal, die in the well because it's the Sabbath? Don't sign me up. That's what I thought you all were. So he's cooked them again. And at this point, you know, the Pharisees are just probably going, somebody stop him from asking these questions. We can't win. He's trapping us, and we weren't supposed to be trapping him. And perhaps at that point, somebody said, Yoo-hoo, dinner time. And so let's change the subject. And they all start breaking towards the table to get ready for the meal. And this is interesting because <clears throat> at this point, he's watching how the Pharisees, they're all jockeying for the key position around the table. Now, in our tables today, perhaps you have a, a dining table that's more like a rectangle. And we know that the key seats are typically the, the top and the bottom, Right? If you have a circular table, it's a little harder to know. But in any event, you, you, have, you, you have this sort of... But that's not how the tables were shaped back then. In those days, the tables were shaped like a big U. And so the people would sit on the outside of the U, and it, it came down like this to the middle. And it's that seat right there in the bottom of the U. That's the VIP seat. And the people who sat next to that person, you knew, oh, you're pretty big time. And then the people who were seated increasingly out apart from the middle of the U. They're like, small potatoes, you don't matter very much. And so all the Pharisees, they're jockeying to get down to the bottom of the U when, they, when it's time for supper. And, and Jesus is watching this. And you know, he's chuckling on the end. Oh my gosh, you people, look at you. 
and he's gonna needle them again. Let's look at what he does, verse seven and 14. When he noticed how the guests had placed, had picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to the wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. And if that happens, the host who invited both of you will come and say, give, your, give this person your seat. And then you'll be humiliated and you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, you take the lowest place. And then when the host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's saying, Pharisees, I just watched what you did. And I would just say, if I were you, I don't think I would do that. Because I don't think any of you is important as you think you are. This is a great passage. It's a challenging passage because it's going to highlight for us the three characteristics of a proud person. Jot them down. Here's the first one. Proud people overestimate their importance. Proud people overestimate their importance. That's why they're jockeying to get down to the bottom of the, of the table, the, to the you. And you know, this is nothing new. It starts when we're little kiddos. You just go look at a first grade or kindergarten class. And the teacher says, line up. And what happens? Who wants to get to the... I'm going to be the leader. I'm the line leader. And they walk through the, the, through the school actually feeling like, you know, I really am something. You know, and it hadn't yet dawned on them, eh, tomorrow you ain't going to be the leader. Somebody else is going to be the line leader. But we do the same thing. We just do it in ways that are a little bit more savvy as we get older. Humility, though, you have to understand, humility was not a value, not back in this day and age. In fact, humility, if you were called humble, that was like, that's bad, because humble or humility was something that characterized slaves, poor people. You don't want to be one of them. So you were conditioned to jockey and show people how great that you were. Jesus is going to come in and he's going to just pull the rug out from right underneath their, their way of thinking. He's going to say, that's not how it works in the kingdom of heaven. That's not how it works in my kingdom. In my kingdom, the first will be last and the rich will be made poor and the last will be first and the poor will be made rich. And those who are high now, they'll be brought low and those who are low now will be raised high. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's how it is in the kingdom, he says. Rick Warren said of this verse, in God's kingdom, you can either humble yourself or end up humiliated. Sort of like the woman I read about from a different era who she approached her pastor at church and she said, Pastor, I can't help it. Every time I come to church, I, I can't help but notice I am the most beautiful woman in the whole <laughs> church. I'm the prettiest one of all. But I know that that's prideful. And pride's a sin. What am I to do? And the pastor said, ma'am, <laughs> relax. You're not in sin. You're just terribly mistaken. <laughs> and a lot of us, I think we're, 
terribly mistaken about our importance as well. We've overestimated it. I know that's very common in D.C., our nation's capital. There in D.C. is the Passion City D.C. Church that Ben Stewart pastors. You know, he was our youth pastor 20 and more years ago. And he's having a marvelous ministry. And God's giving him more influence than, than you would ever know because he doesn't talk about it, not publicly, but he has senators who are texting him questions and prayer requests. Justices of the Supreme Court who come and worship at his church. And during a prior administration, the Pences, Mike and Karen Pence, looked to him and Donna as their pastoral uh, couple. And subsequently, he, he officiated the wedding of the Pence daughter that got married several years ago. And they'd been to a handful of dinners at the White House. And he even got to ride on, on Air Force Two um, a couple of years ago. And I remember when he told me, I was like, no, you stop. How does that, I mean, where do you even go to get on? How does that happen to get on the Air Force? He, he says, well, it's kind of funny what happened. He says, we, we were told, we were called and, and said, hey, the vice president and his wife would like for you and Donna to join Ben Carson and his wife. And you'll fly down and back same day for a funeral of a Christian uh, who died. And so, of course, you say, yes. He said, so we showed up at the place that we were told to show up. And you get in the queue and you line up and, you, and they swab your nose to make sure you don't have the COVID. And then you get through that. And then we're just among all these people. We don't know anybody. So it's kind of weird. And it's all, we realize it's all the media. It's the press corps. And then finally somebody says, okay, everybody, time to board the plane. Come follow me. And so we stand up and we start walking out and we walk out on the tarmac and up the back ramp of the airplane and find a couple of seats. And so we sit down and strap in. We're like, wow, this is something. Wonder what happens now. A few minutes later, an authority comes up. Says, Pastor Stewart and Donna? Yes. I'm terribly sorry. You weren't supposed to board with the press. You're sitting up front with the Pences and the Carsons. Follow me. I said, so he leads you up? He said, no, he doesn't lead us up front. He leads us off the back of the plane. We go back down off the ramp, across the tarmac, back into the building. The Pences are like, oh, we're so sorry. It got confusing here. Come with us. We'll all walk it together. And we'll sit together. He walks out. They walk out, back across the tarmac, back up the front steps. He said, and it's really cool. The chairs face you so we could have this conversation. We talked the whole way down, the whole way back and then when we landed, before we got off, the vice president said, before we leave, pastor, I want you to say a prayer for us. She's telling this story to me. I thought, <laughs> I thought it was Jesus said, but when you're invited, you take the lowest place. And then your host will come and say, friend, come with me. You need to move up to a better place. I'm convinced one of the reasons that God is giving the stewards such influence is that they're stewarding it with such humility. And it's a marvelous thing to, to watch. Proud people, though, they don't do that. 
They want everybody to know all the great things that they are and all the great things that they're done. I think most of us, we would like to be humble like that. And we'd like to take the lesser seat. We're just afraid nobody would notice. (laughs) And that's the problem. The Pharisees, they were afraid of that too. They're all jockeying, overestimating their importance. I wonder about you. Do you ever overestimate how important you are compared to the next? Do you ever feel like, I deserve to be up front of the line here, a little bit more at least. I wish I could say never, but I have too. And that's what pride does. It causes us to overestimate our importance. The inverse is true too. It causes us to underestimate the value of other people. Especially the people who seem a little bit inconsequential. How did this chapter start? It started with the Pharisees, presumably, intentionally, importing this man who had dropsy. And putting him right there where Jesus would have to deal with him. They didn't care about that man. He was just a pawn. He was just a prop they were using. But Jesus addressed him and was gracious and generous, benevolent to him. And that's how humble people are. That's what they do. Just recently, I was in Kentucky for the 100th gala celebration of Asbury Theological Seminary, the seminary where Pastor Dan and I both trained for ministry years ago. And it was a glorious night. They had all sorts of videos and talks and it was very inspiring. And and at the end of the evening, I was out at a hotel lobby just reconnecting with old friends and uh, having fun. And the board of Asbury Seminary is now chaired by a lady whose name is Karen Thomas. And I saw Karen walking uh, my direction. As she started to go by me, I said, hey, Karen, this was a great night. I just loved it. And you did a marvelous job of, of emceeing. And she stopped uh, with two or three of us that were talking. She sighed and she said, thanks. It's been a big, it's been a big thing prepping. But it really did go well, didn't it? I said, oh, yeah, it was wonderful. She said, Ken, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I think one of the reasons I am where I am now serving on this board as chair is due in part to your father. I said, how's that? He said, oh, she said, when I was a young uh, recent graduate from the seminary and they invited me, would you be on the board? I was like, well, yes, but I knew that there was all sorts of rather well-known, older, wiser people, and everybody knew who the white-haired judge in the room was. That's Judge Werlein. She said, but he was nothing like what I had expected that he would be. She said, because I remember the first meeting, I went in, and, and, and he came over, and he said, Karen, you come, you sit by me. And he explained some of what was going on and gave me the background, a little coaching. And later in the day, when it was... Discussion time, and people had shared. He said, well, Karen, you're one of our newest graduates. I think we should hear. What do you think about this matter? 
She said, I think he'll never know what that did for my self-esteem. Because I was a nobody around that table, a rookie. And yet he opened up a pathway, treated me with that sort of respect and, and dignity and actually gave me the opportunity to share some of my thoughts. And now several decades later, I think along the way, I, I started to have the courage to think maybe I too could one day become one of those older, wiser people. Not only is she chair of the Asbury Seminary Board, she's also on the board of Pine Cove camps. But, you know, as, I, as she was telling me that story, I smiled and I was thinking to myself, that doesn't really surprise me. Because over the years, I can't number the times that when somebody says, you're Judge Werlein's, I am Judge Werlein's son. They'll say, oh my goodness, let me tell you. When I was a long, young attorney or when I was a young pastor or when I was a young anything and just starting out in this vocation or that, your dad surprised me with his concern, his consideration for me. And he'd come over and talk to me and ask me, how are you doing? And what are you working on? And is there anything I could do to help you do it better? Proud people underestimate the value of other people, especially the inconsequential people. But humble people don't do that. Humble people speak to everybody. And subsequently, they'll, they'll have friends all across the continuum, rich friends, powerful friends, poor friends who don't have nearly that part, all the way in between because they treat all of them as worthy. That's what humility is. That's what these Pharisees weren't. And this is why Jesus is is challenging them because they were so consistently undervaluing other people. The problem with proud, proud people is, is this, it's the third thing. Consistently proud people rely on faulty standards. They rely on faulty standards to make their estimation of who they are. Here's what I mean by that. Remember, I, I opened by talking about Titanic. So the, the Titanic, the greatest ship ever, it's unsinkable, it's invincible, all these things. You know why the Titanic sank? Why it was a disaster? Because of pride. When they were sizing up its glory, the only basis for comparison that they could line the Titanic up next to was all the lesser vessels that had been built to that point. And it dwarfed them. Oh, but only if they could have seen a hundred years forward, you know what they'd have seen? This. That's a juxtaposition of a ship for scale in comparison of today to what the Titanic was. I think if they could have just seen that, They'd have said, you know, on second thought, maybe we ought to finish the lifeboats and get them all installed and practice and because we're not quite as invincible as we felt. See, they, they, they were using the wrong standard. And we do the very same thing. 
you'll always look like the Titanic if you're just always comparing yourself to little dinghy boats. And that's what we do. Peon, peon, look at me. No, you're compared, we're compared to the wrong, who should we compare to? The gold standard himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you line yourself up next to him. and You look more like this. And you realize, I don't think I'm so great after all. And I think it'd be a good exercise for us to have in our own life. The problem is we're framing it all wrong. And that's what the, the Pharisees were doing. They're, they're in the midst of Christ himself, and yet they miss it. That's, this is the irony of it. They're acting like puffed up peacocks, strutting around, talking about how spiritual and important they are. And they just don't realize because he's veiled his glory in flesh, incarnate, deity. They don't realize whose presence they're in right there next to them. You know what plagiarism is? If you could just recently go back to school, they probably gave you a little talk about it. You can't plagiarize. What's plagiarizing? Plagiarizing when you copy out something else somebody else wrote. And you say, there's my work. Look at that. Aren't I great? They're like, no, you can't do that. That's plagiarizing, taking credit for somebody else and what they did. Tim Keller says, pride is divine plagiarism. What's he mean by that? What he means is it is plagiaristic of us to, to take the gifts and the talents and the charm that, that he's put within us and act like it's not from him. Strutting around like, look at who I am. <laughs> look at what I can do. Look how powerful I am. She's like, oh my gosh. You're, div you're committing divine plagiarism. Don't you realize without me, you would have nothing. And all it would take even now is, is one Bad injury if you're an athlete or one disaster like 9-11 21 years ago today and everything in your life would change. Don't you be strutting around as if look at everything I've done, everything I have. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. So let's start to bring it in for a landing. How can we have victory? Now, identifying the qualities of the characteristics of, of pride. How can I have victory? Because I want to have victory. C.S. Lewis said three things. First off, you have to recognize it. You have to recognize it. That's the first thing. And this is the problem because we, we're pretty good at denial. And you say, well, I, I think I'm actually pretty good on this one. Why didn't you do uh, what King David did? And pray what he wrote in Psalm 139. Search my heart, O God, and show me if there is any offensive way in me. You do that. You get down on your knees and you say, Lord, I want you to search my heart. I don't think I'm proud. I don't want to be proud. 
but I need you to search my heart because I'm having a hard time putting a finger on it. Some of you are like, I'm not having a hard time putting a finger on it, I know. But some of you are like, I'm having a hard time putting it. You just pray, Lord, would you search my heart and you show me. You sit there, ah, two minutes, three, with your pen in your hand and your journal. He'll, he'll bring a scene to your mind. He'll bring a picture, a person's name. And it might be a moment you need to go back and, and apologize for. But it's definitely one that you'll need to move to the second step. And that is you have to repent. What does it mean to repent? To repent means I'm going to turn around. By God's grace, I was going this way, but I'm not going to go that way. Not anymore. By God's grace, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to go this way. Instead, that's what it means to repent. Now, here's the challenge. You say, okay, I'm going to recognize it. I'm going to repent of it. You get to the end of a day, and you're like, I think I had moderate success over pride. I think mostly I've had a humble spirit. Good. Until the morning. Because then you wake up and it's back. And that's how pride works. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. It just keeps popping up. And so we have to go through the same exercise again. Humbling ourselves and repenting. Which leads to the third thing. How do we do that? How do we keep it current? We have to re-gospel ourselves. What's the gospel? Gospel is a fancy theological word that means good news. Good news. What's the good news? For us who follow Christ. The good news is that God, who saw us in our sins and could have said, you all deserve hell and death. Look at you. You've made a mockery of all that I created for this world to be and you to be in it. But instead of wadding us up and throwing us away like a piece of trash, he said, but I love you and I'm going to have mercy. And he came to us. He drew near, not away, not apart. Not distance, he comes near and he becomes one of us. He said, this is how much I love you. And he takes on flesh and blood and becomes one of us. He lives the life of perfection that we couldn't live. Sinlessness, total humility. And then he died to death, a punishment that all of us deserved. And then he conquers the grave. You said, how does that help me with pride? Oh, it'll help you with pride. Because all you have to do is look on the opposite side, the flip side of the coin of the gospel. Where would you be without Christ? Hopeless, headed for a Christless eternity in hell? Oh, that's right. There's your mental adjustment right there. And so we trust in Christ and receive the gospel. You say, okay, well, I did that already. I've done that, but I still feel pride. Yes, that's why I'm saying re-gospel yourself. But I got to get saved again? No, you don't have to get saved again. But you have to go back to the story of the gospel and you have to remind yourself, wait, 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 wait. wait. I think I'm getting a little high here on the hog. I think I need to remember without him, I would be nothing. And you bow your knee. You remember the good news that gives us all that we have in the way of hope today. You remember who Jesus was, the humble one who took the towel and the basin and washed the disciples' feet that night at a different dinner before he would go to the cross. When they're like, I ain't washing the feet, I ain't washing the feet. Jesus said, you watch me. 
how could he wash the feet? Because he was so secure in who he knew, in who he was. It says there in John, Jesus, knowing he was from the Father and that he would go back to the Father. He had his identity crystal clear. And once you get that clear, you're freed up to take a towel, a basin, to wash anybody's feet. And in so doing, what I want you to realize, friends, is that he calls us to this because this isn't the final dinner. This isn't the final dinner party that Jesus goes to. I already told you about another one we call the Last Supper. But there will be that final heavenly banquet. And here's the reality. We don't get glory twice. What do I mean by that? When we choose the pathway of humility, serving somebody who had a need, helping them, showing benevolence, generosity. You go out and you toot your horn and you, look what I did. Okay, you just took your glory on this side of heaven. You don't get it twice. But you do that with a discreetness. The Lord knows. You know. That's all they need to know. What does he say? Then you can count on the day when one day he'll say to you, friend, here at the heavenly banquet, I don't want you sitting way out there. I want you sitting close to me. See, I think the problem, especially in this day and age where we like likes so much, is we want our glory now. And my fear is that there's any number of us who one day will be saved, but as Paul wrote to 1 Corinthians 3.15, we'll be saved barely as those who slithered past the fire. The Lord said, barely, but why don't you go on out to that end of the table because you, you already took all your glory on that side. Conversely, he'll say to those who were high, who were first on this side, now you go and be last. I'm ready for those who've been last and least to be brought in first. You sit close to me. You see how it works. It's a challenging thing. It's a challenging passage. It's challenging for me. I've been preaching it to myself, even as I was preparing it all week. But it's a good text. It's an important one. And I think if we could get this in the American church, we might actually start to see some progress in the way of revival in our nation. It's happening in other parts of the world. It's not happening in America. I think it's because we're so proud. And the Lord says, well, I'm going to cut the flow of my grace off. Because as First Peter would write in chapter 5, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Let's be those people who respond to his grace full of humility. Amen? I'm going to ask us to do something in both rooms. I'm going to ask us if, if you're physically capable, not to embarrass you if you can't do it, don't do it. But if you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to do something that takes some humility. We're going to kneel as I say closing prayer. Why? Because kneeling reminds us, I'm not number one. Number ones don't kneel. 
So why don't we go and pray right now, taking that posture in both rooms. I'll lead us. Lord, thank you for uh, this word. It is a challenging word, but it's an important word. Forgive us, Lord, for how many times we have obviously sidestepped this word and we begin to believe our own press and think we're so great and and we're missing what it is that you always had in store. We're missing the call that you gave to us to make the impact that we could have. But proud people don't make impacts, not for you, Jesus. The only people who ever remember us and our connection to you are the people along the way who remembered us as humble. That's where the impact is made. In this moment, even now, Lord, would you help us to recognize, just to recognize, like we were just saying, where am I being proud? Show us that. Put your finger on that in our souls, Lord, if we haven't already felt it very clearly. Even now, bring that to mind, Lord. And friend, why don't you now, with that in mind, say, I want to repent. I want to turn around, Lord. I don't want to be a proud person live with that superficiality and that phoniness that defines so much of our nation, sadly, at this juncture. I want to be a person whose well runs deep and who depends upon you and who right-sizes myself because my standard is a little dingy boat, but is you, Lord Jesus. Repent. Tell him right now, I'm turning around by your grace because I want to be a humble person. And then let's remember the gospel. That's the good news. That's where the hope is. We're not left in despair. We're not left to feel guilty and bad. And boy, did I bomb on this exam. Boy, did I, this sermon was pretty rough. The hope is all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of your glory, but all of us can be transformed by your grace. Would you speak to each of us now, the reminder of that? And if you have not said yes to Christ in the first place, you right now say, Jesus, I'm asking you, come into my heart, forgive me of my sins, cleanse me of unrighteousness, fill me full of your grace, humility. And if you have prayed that before, still helpful for us to re-gospel, to remind ourselves the hope that I have only comes because of the goodness he's shown to me, the blessings he's given to me. Help me walk with that in mind, full of humility. We pray these things, Lord, in the strong name.